Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To learn about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompoundinggazette.com. That's focuscompoundinggazette.com, and enter your email. Once you enter your email, you'll start getting one free 2,000-word stock write-up a week. Andrew and I also manage accounts for clients. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. Now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. Andrew Kuhn, Focused Compounding, sitting alongside my co-founder, Mr. Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going great, Andrew. How's it going with you? It is going wonderful. We hope it's going great for everybody else. We are back in Dallas, first time since our Willow Oak event. I just wanted to give everybody uh, or just say to everybody really quick, thank you so much for all of the emails, tweets, DMs. Uh, I know uh, you also got a lot of that as well. Just Mm -hmm. a bunch of love letters uh, wishing us, um, you know, uh, congratulations and uh, good thoughts. And we really just want to say thank you so much to everybody who uh, reached out to us, obviously, uh, Focus Compounding has been a lot of fun for us, and it's just the next next step down the road. Uh, so we're certainly excited to uh, get going with Willow Oak. Um, in today's video, we are going to be going over um, it, mistakes that investors will always make, or we could okay. say just certain biases that investors, um, you know, fall prey to, mm-hmm. um, and that they'll always kind of fall victim to. Right. And um, this idea came up because somebody asked us a question: if we invest in REITs, yes, which we don't. Mm-hmm. And I thought it would be a fun uh, video to and, and podcast to go over this because one of the most popular podcasts we've ever done was actually the common mistakes investors make. Yes. Um, so I thought it'd be um, you know really fun and and to sort of go over it. So why don't you invest in REITs and why have you always stayed away from REITs? Yeah. So um, there's nothing wrong with all REITs, but the reason that I was kind of saying, "Oh, I'm this is a good question," but I'm not going to really have an interesting answer for it. Yeah, is that there are certain things that I think certain securities that I think appeal to investors and to certain groups of investors, and sort of uh, they get overpriced mm-hmm. as a result. And actually, I had gotten that email about the REIT thing, and then when we were at the Willow Oak event, there was a question they asked while I was on a panel thing there, saying like, "Well, here are the biases that people have. What do you do to to fight?" those biases and overcome them and everyone had good answers and stuff but i didn't give an answer because my answer basically be i think it's really really hard even if you know the bias to actually overcome it sure you know Uh so i think you can know there's a bias and you can still fall for it over and over again and we'll see that here when we talk about these things i think if you find yourself doing some of the things we're going to talk about here you're probably going to do it again even after you've listened to this episode yeah so but you know, we'll see. Yeah, <laughs> we'll see. At least so you'll know what mistakes screwed. you're likely to make. <laughs> so, uh, so REITs. The the reason really is that I think people overvalue income. I know that. I get lots and lots of emails. Now, like as uh, like from a dividend standpoint. Yes, or, the it. same. If they got the same income, if you told people that you can make ten uh, percent a year in stocks, and then you can sell it to produce your income, all in capital gains, there won't be any dividends paid out to you, uh, and then you can sell a portion of that to fund something, like say you were creating a trust or found uh, for a foundation or an endowment for a college or whatever. Um, people would uh, prefer to get it in income than having to sell something to produce that income, right? Mm-hmm. And there's some disadvantages from a tax perspective to selling stuff to you know to, to with having to pay taxes and stuff, but it's not a very big disadvantage. And so people really overvalue the income being paid out to them in a dividend or something like that. Now. In a lot of companies, they're retaining half their earnings or so, and they're paying out the other half in dividends. That's fine, and it's a fine way to get income that's left over. But in a structure like a REIT, what's often happening is they're paying out virtually everything. And in fact, 
they're really, if they're going to grow or something like that, they're going to issue additional shares, they're going to borrow, they're going to do things like that. So they're paying out, to my mind, sometimes more than they actually uh, have in cash from like an owner's earnings perspective. Mm-hmm. So it would be the equivalent of like if you had a stock that we were investing in or whatever, and they're paying more than 100% of their earnings out in dividends uh, of their real free cash flow. So I think that it's just a way that they know that people value um, income much higher. So let's say a stock had a P of 10. We can find stocks that have a P of 10, but good luck finding a stock that has a yield of 10%, right? And think how risky some of those stocks are with a yield of 10% versus how safe some stocks are with a P of 10. We can find safe stocks with a P of 10. Um, They're unpopular for various reasons, but they're not in grave danger of uh, having earnings go down a lot. But anything I can think of that is yielding 10% right now is in serious danger of cutting that, right? And people get attracted to it all the time, and then they're going to cut it, and you're going to be down to, you know, 5% or whatever. So that happens all the times with REITs, uh, more so than anything else, because they're created almost from birth, uh, publicly traded ones, to be something that is um, uh, basically just like a vehicle for income. And particularly now in the last 10 years or so, with interest rates so low, people really reach for that income and and things like that. But you can see that even like um, bonds. Some people are investing in government bonds, and government bonds are an inferior investment choice to even corporate bonds and things like that because people pay too much for risk-free interest, basically. So they bid it up to too high a price. The yield is too low. And so over time, you're just going to perform worse by doing that. And it's just certain income is something that people really overvalue. I mean, have do you find that to be true? Sure. That yeah. like, look, if you told people, like, for instance, if you had a product that was like, we guarantee that we'll yeah, you'll get course. this much from this insurance company or whatever, they're going to value that at a really high uh, value compared to like an uncertain return in the S and P five hundred over yeah. decades. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I do think it comes from though, like, at what point in your um, reti- what part you are in your life? Quite honestly, like, mm-hmm. if you're in retirement and people just they want that predictable income stream. That yeah. could be different than somebody that's 34 years old who, you know, is looking to just grow their money right. as fast as possible or as much as possible. I right. Say. But the difference is what happens is so like say government bonds yield 3%. Yeah. All right. Well, they decide I need more than 3%. Instead of just saying, oh, well, I can only get 3% that's guaranteed. They start thinking, well, what can I get that 6%? Mm-hmm. But what you can get at 6% is often more dangerous than a stock. Oh, totally. Um, yeah. And so the, you have to be very careful about doing that. I had a, uh, I know an, an ind- individual who he was, um, you know, he owned a bunch of, uh, of bonds. He said, and I forget what they were yielding, but north of 10%. And yeah. upon actually doing due diligence and looking at his portfolio, he owned a bunch of junk bonds, just right. like a terrible companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, if you would invest in the stock of the company, which then by the way, it's not it's like fun. he was a fundamental investor at all. He was just right. attracted to the yield exactly. on paper. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't like you know. There's some individuals that they specialize in sort of that distressed oh, yeah. space, and you know, maybe they take a little bit more of a fundamental, um, you know, investing point of view to it, where it's totally different. They're very you know competent, I guess, in that industry or that mm-hmm. that way of investing. This this gentleman, he was just very. Um, you know, big eyed towards just the yield that he was yeah. getting. Yeah. But the problem is that when you have the PE ratio, often people aren't as attracted to that, the earnings yield. Mm-hmm. So like if you have uh, a bond that yields 12%, people are really excited by that in a way they're not for a PE of eight. Mm-hmm. Even though the PE of eight really is telling you much the same thing in some cases as that bond, it's not guaranteed in that way, but often the quality of what you'll get is a lot safer. I mean, there are stocks that trade at um, earnings yields of 12% and have no debt. If you try to find a bond that yields twelve percent right now, that's you're going to see some seriously yeah. poor coverage of totally. the of the yeah. interest that they're paying out, and you know it, it's it's very risky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that people 
reach too much for income uh, compared to the same amount that they could get from capital gains, from buying something, getting the capital gain, and selling it. Uh, you know, uh, income, if it's as safe as the capital gains that you're getting, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think that people equate the two in a way that's not a- appropriate. You can often have a much safer capital gains than what they're reaching for in terms of income. What do you think about MLPs? Same sort of thing, yeah. So, I mean, I, there are some that are better, but it's still the same structure, I think. I mean, some things... Here also how it's marketed to investors, why it was created this way and everything. Uh, the best position in, is usually not being the limited partner. It's being the general partner. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you have to wonder why do I want to be invested as a limited partner when there's a general partner who's probably making more off of this. And I think, honestly, the distributions are a big part of that. People are buying it for the income. You know, and it's totally interesting, too, because um, I knew a product that was at a wirehouse. I okay. won't say the name of that. Mm-hmm. I knew a product that was more on the independent side, so they don't operate through a wirehouse. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the product on the independent side was a little bit better, the same exact product okay. for the investor than at the wirehouse because there was less mouths to feed in between. So okay, it yeah, wasn't yeah. as watered down. Mm-hmm. You know, Isn't that kind of interesting? Yeah. And that's always one thing that you want to flip around when we're talking about any of these things is, okay, you want, I think people are very focused on like, I want income. Okay, that's great. But whenever you're looking to buy something from someone like that, you want to think, well, what are they getting out of this? It's even if it was like, you know, your insurance or something. Well, you know, if it's car insurance, you need it. So that's the situation that you're stuck in. But in other forms of insurance, it's like, well, why are they giving me this rate? Because it's a bad deal for me. But if I need the insurance to smooth things out to protect myself in the worst case, okay. But I should understand this is on the odds a bad idea what I'm doing, you know, and keep that in mind. Yeah, and the common theme in, in both of these you know, uh, I guess products that we're talking about is they're highly commissionable products too, yeah. which is kind of interesting. Yeah, how that works. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was at a, a car dealership uh, looking at cars and stuff uh, with someone, and I was like, um, you know, so of course people are focused on what their interests are, and they're like, oh, but I really want to get this today or whatever. And yeah, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, but then we're gonna make five hundred dollars today. The moment they sell you that loan with it, you know, yeah, they're yeah. gonna go. They don't care if you pay the loan or not. They're getting that you know amount of money off this. And if you walk out, they've just lost a prospect that they would pay a lot to have that chance. You know? Sure. They don't know someone else is walking in here now. So you want to always think about the incentives from the other side that way. Totally. So yeah. why are they structuring the product like this? In a lot of these cases, I think it's because by distributing stuff to you in cash consistently, they can get a, uh, it can be much more highly priced. So the same amount of money retained by the business would have a much lower PE than what you're getting in terms of like price to dividend by paying the stuff out to you. A dividend is just value. You're valuing it too highly compared to other sorts of things. So if you were to structure a portfolio Mm -hmm. that the point of it was for income maximization, taking income from it for maybe somebody that's in retirement or whatever, how would you structure that portfolio? Well, honestly, I... We're not CFPs. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Honestly, in in the long run, I think that you're usually going to be better off by having capital gains. Got it. So 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 selling off a portion. Yeah. Got it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if that means that you have to sell off 5% of the portfolio at all times, you're probably going to have a better return that way. That's true even if we're talking about things like, um, even like, for example, junk bonds. Safer, better returns in junk bonds or in a junk bond fund or something is going to have a significant component of capital gains as part of it, actually. It's going to be that the bond was trading at a um, lower price versus par than what it actually ended up at when you got out of it or when it matured. So... Uh, I think that that's also part of it, too, that way. Um, It's even like when we talk about things, we've talked about Timberland before or something. It may be one of the reasons why that I think, well, Timberland's a good example. I think Timberland has often been priced really attractively versus bonds. And that's kind of silly because people really want to 
generally people thinking about retirement or something want to preserve their real purchasing power. Sure. Yeah. Right. So it's if they want to make up inflation too. The bond is not protecting them in terms of inflation, and yet they could get this return in Timberland, but it's not all coming in the form of cash being paid out to you. It's being you know a significant amount of is capital gains and things like that. And uh, but but it's a good alternative and something that should be in there with bonds or in a substitute to certain bonds. I think. But I, good luck selling people on that idea. What about IPOs? Why uh, don't we, we ever don't ever. Have yeah. you ever bought an IPO? No, never. And I've why a couple that? times looked at IPOs afterwards. Now, is that because typical investors that you follow, Warren Buffett, he yeah. says that they've never purchased an IPO. Are you like totally turned off by IPOs in general or what is it? Yeah, I'm totally turned off by IPOs in general. Why is that? Uh, so you're not buying WeWork? Correct. Yeah. And that's why, because everyone knows about WeWork and stuff because they, now it went it's gone badly so yeah, far yeah, when we're totally. recording this it's not going well but they've put out the whole story the whole you know they've created the buzz around it and everything it's it's the worst time to buy something so you're getting the same thing um so let's say you buy the stock today or you buy it in a year or two or something it's the same stock it's the same thing that you're owning but at this moment if there's going to be an artificial sense of scarcity there's going to be stuff that's locked up they're only going to do so much of it whatever um there's going to be people who are concerned what if i don't get in the first day so there's an urgency to it so it's as if there's some um department store that's saying we're only going to have 15 of these items first ones in the door are going to get it um we're cutting the price by 50 percent, but tomorrow goes right back up to that old price yeah, you know yeah, yeah, yeah. that sort of thing it creates all of that atmosphere sure, yeah. and then there are other things about it that create an atmosphere more like an auction where then people are watching it go up in price when that happens and they're focused on the price action that yeah, way yeah. it's going to get you know they're going to make sure that there's all this stuff covered in the press about it and everything so it's just from it's you're going to get one of the worst prices that you'll ever get for the stock. Um, some IPOs perform fine so that they out there um, are more expensive in the future. The stock goes up and you'd have to pay more in the future. But in terms of like we focus on overlooked things and I think spinoffs are a good idea because they're likely to be the reverse where their advantages to the buyer and the seller is in a disadvantaged situation. Here we have the opposite. They're, the seller is not at all motivated to sell usually. Now, sometimes that's not true. WeWork needs capital, so yeah, they sure. might be. Um, but in many cases, when a company IPOs, they don't really need the access to the capital. There are some examples I can think of where they really do. But um, uh, and where So if it doesn't go well or something, they can just move it to another time. They're picking this particular time because they think it's basically they think this now is the best yeah. time to sell it. It's yeah, overvalued yeah. and stuff. Sure. So it's as if, you know, it, I mean, think about if you were I mean, that's essentially what they're doing when you think about going back to the incentives, right? Yeah. When they're taking a public, a pump, a cup, uh, can't we speak, a company public, it's because they think it's the most, you know, valuable time for it to go from their perspective yeah. to sell it to the public. Yeah. Well, I'll give you an example. Okay. Who would you not want to buy a house from? You don't want to buy a house from someone who is a uh, real estate broker who owns the house. That's the worst person to buy the house <laughs> yeah, from. Sure. So they know the market and stuff. They will actually wait and leave their house on the market longer than other than they would probably even for their own clients, let's face it, uh, because they're 100% invested in this, sure. whereas they only are invested yeah. in the commission for other ones. So they're going to work the hardest to do it. They're going to, if it's a bad time for the market, they're going to take the house off the market. They're going to be very focused on getting the best price that way. And that's what you're dealing with with an IPO is you're dealing with some of the most informed people about the market, what the demand is for it. They felt all this stuff out before, and they've decided now is the best time. Well, if the seller thinks now is the best time, for the buyer, this is the worst time. It doesn't mean that the companies might not be great and turn out to be um, amazing long-term investments. They might be. But 
uh, a year from now is probably a better time to think about it. Mm-hmm. So I have looked at busted IPOs before. So, so like what from uh, just uh, the like classic public, ones? Oh, actually, one almost from the moment it was an IPO because it was a weird one was a company called Open Table. It was eventually taken over, but um, it was a weird one because it decided to go ahead with its IPO even though it had it was like a bad time for IPOs. Yeah. So that was a weird one. Um, and did then you, did you buy it? No, I did not. I yeah. wrote I've up used stuff that about before. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think Booking eventually bought it. Mm. I'm pretty sure. I, can see that. I think they had an impairment on it. Uh, and um, then uh, the other one that recently that I saw that was really amazing to me was Funko. Do you know this company? No. Okay. So if you go to like a um, uh, like a GameStop or someplace like that, you'll see their little figures. Um, they're like ten dollars like less figures? figures. They're not even action figures. They're just collectible things yeah, that don't yeah. move and stuff. You know, nice. uh-huh. and they're either vinyl or plastic. And they're like they'll have Game of Thrones characters or something like that, right? And they coincide with like a major release of things or Got just it. what's yeah. in the pop culture sure. kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And um, it was remarkable how badly it went after the IPO, how cheap it got. And, I, you know, I talked to some people who bought those sorts of things. I looked at the different places that it was and stuff. It seemed like it was going to grow quite a bit and yeah. stuff. So it was interesting. I mean, it was not at a price that a value investor would buy, but it does sometimes happen that there are these weird things where I don't know why it went that badly and stuff. Um, but even then... Uh, same way you probably got a better price a, a few months later or something than than buying in the ipo got it it's great to learn about them at the time of the ipo because that's totally. the most yeah. information you're ever going to get in those filings and stuff and so i read those filings yeah. but don't buy the company i mean i read the filings too because a lot of the companies that go public today are more like you know tech oriented and mm-hmm. even though we don't invest in a lot of those types of companies i still enjoy reading about them and yeah learning about them and seeing you know how they sort of you know make money and stuff like that yeah and so there's a very extensive filings that you can go and find on agri uh leverage etfs what is your opinion on that well that's a good example of just something a bigger class of things that i think is a mistake investors will make like all the time which is um so that's a that's something which over a long enough time horizon will be worthless basically because it's leveraged that's the reason why so if you have something that's going up and down like that and it's leveraged over time you're likely to do um uh, what they call gambler's ruin, which is that um, it, you will eventually cross zero. So you'll basically, um, even though over time you might think that on any given day, your odds of going up or down are good enough that it's a good investment, if you compound those over time, you're going to find that while crossing, um, being up 100% doesn't mean anything. Being down 100% means you're broke. It's sure. over. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and, and there's a good book about that. Um, there, Well, there's a good book that covers a lot of that, which is, um, uh, well, Actually, the one that I liked a lot was A Man for All Markets, but also I think Fortune's Formula covers some of that. Um, And that's the Kelly formula and all that stuff. So what the Kelly formula really is telling you is people take it as like a betting formula of what you should be betting. But what it's really telling you is the maximum that it's safe to bet beyond which you would run a risk even if you were right about all your assumptions of still going broke. And that's what I'm talking about here. So there are instruments that people like that are dangerous because of how volatile they are and how likely they are that you could end up losing everything in them, even though um, it might seem like a smart idea just on the odds. Mm. And the biggest reason for that is always leverage. 
So it's the same thing with uh, borrowing on margin. Sure. It's the same thing with there are other ways to to do certain leverage things, and uh, they all potentially have that risk. And I think people need to think about that about how can I go broke while being right. Sure. And yeah. some of these things you can go broke while being right. Yeah. And so and I think people don't uh, they like the upside to it and they think it's a smart investment, but they don't realize that there it's not the same as a stock investment in which you're like uh, here's an example S and P five hundred whether you buy it a really high price really low price no matter what happens with the economy the risk that you'll go broke is nothing sure because of the diversification like to go to it. actual zero it, it yeah. won't actually go yeah. to zero you can lose 90 percent; it'll recover from that mm-hmm. you want to always ask yourself is there a way that this can get to a point that i can actually lose everything i have in it that i can't recover is there a way that you can't recover in this and um that can happen even with a company that's very very highly leveraged same sort of thing you know that if it defaults the company will eventually come out of bankruptcy and be successful if it's a good business and you know that, but you as the shareholder could end up with nothing. So anything that, you know, can I go broke in this? Is there a way for that to happen? Yeah. Sure. Um, saving on taxes. That's a huge one. <laughs> so um, saving on taxes and also just saving expenses on things sure. too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I got that a lot with uh, a big reason why people would pass on Japanese net nets is that they would have to switch brokers or if they didn't switch brokers, their broker would charge them like a hundred dollars to do it. So they didn't want to do it. Um, you could probably have a diversified, you know, portfolio of like five net nets or something for $500, depending on how much you're putting in it. If you do the math on that, what people don't like is if they saw that and said, well, that's 3% of what I'm putting in, that sounds so high to them used to like, um, brokers now and stuff where it's like nothing that they don't want to make the investment. But you know, if the stocks return 30 or 50% instead of 10%, it's kind of worth it to sure. take that. Yeah. Same sort of thing on taxes. You know, Buffett wrote a great thing in his partnership letters about it. And he, was, he said, here are the ways that you can save on taxes. And he went through them. And he was like, which of these sound appealing to you? You can die with the gain. You can lose the gain the same way that you got it. You know, yeah. And he went through those things. I think a lot of, for whatever reason, I don't know what it is, people um, not making a certain amount of money in the market, like having a somewhat worse return, doesn't hurt them in the same way that paying that in taxes does. So if they made 10% a year instead of 15% a year, somehow that doesn't feel as bad as making 15% a year and paying a third to the government. Yeah. (laughs) Do you find that to be true? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of things that, and just like, customer buying habits that are, are very much like that. Yeah. yeah. And I think, and it, so it's the certainty of it. And then it's a loss, you know, that you're giving to someone else. I mean, we we're talking to someone who was like, um, uh, talking about how you think about, uh, how, how different institutional investors and stuff think about like management fees and yeah. stuff. And they were like, well, because the profit share fee, isn't that certain they're more okay with it. But then if there's a management fee, then they're like, oh, but that's, you know, that's one and a half percent instead of 1% or whatever. Yeah. It's very certain. Sure. And that's sort of the same thing with taxes and stuff like that. Whereas, it, it's fine to save on taxes, other things being equal. Mm-hmm. But sometimes people will do dumb things like, are you holding, are you selling something you shouldn't sell because of taxes? Or are you holding on to something that you really shouldn't hold on to because you're trying to avoid paying a tax on it? Like, that's sure. one of the worst ones that I see is that people are like, well, I have to hold on to this because if I sell it, then I'm going to have to pay these taxes on it. Yeah. Which, you know, if you think, if you think it's a, uh, the business is good and whatever, that's fine, you know, doing nothing. But, it's fine not to turn your portfolio over into other things. But if it's like, well, it's getting a little riskier than what I originally intended, yeah. but I don't want to pay the You're that making tax. The, the, alloc- the decision to not do anything strictly because of taxes. 
Yeah, I mean that's yeah. not a good reason to do it. Yeah. The only reason, the only time when it would make sense, it, it, I think people are mixing something up in their head, which is that I should want to save on taxes. Yeah, you should want to save on taxes if other things are equal. Same things with fees in in portfolios and things. If your choice is between a Vanguard and some other thing that's very similar to Vanguard's uh, S and P five hundred index thing, and it pays a, even the slightest higher. Um, uh, fee, then you should obviously choose on the basis of the fee. But you shouldn't say, oh, it's somewhat a worse mutual fund. I don't really like the manager as much, but the fee is a bit lower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. that, that <laughs> you know, think about how dumb that is. Sure, yeah. And it's the same thing with taxes that way. But people do it because they're like, oh, by doing this, I save. But you bought something worse. It's mm-hmm. kind of like if you went to you know Walmart or whatever, and you're like, "Well, I saved so much by buying the uh, you know this great value brand or whatever." Well, if it's disgusting, then you didn't save yeah, anything. Yeah, yeah, worth. <laughs> What about shorting good companies? Um, you know, where they short pretty much just on valuation alone. So they'll take like a company yeah. that is a very, let's say, like a blue chip company, and they mm-hmm. say it's trading at thirty times earnings, and it deserves a trade in a market multiple or yeah. whatever, and that's their basis for shorting. What yeah, are your we on talk that? about how we don't short, but um, and that is true. We don't yeah. short at yeah. all. Uh, I mean, I short before to hedge something, but um, I, I don't short. Uh, but if I was going to short. The one thing that I won't argue with that it makes sense is to shorting fundamentally um, uh, businesses and business models that don't work and Fra- stuff. Frauds. And, and frauds. Yeah, absolutely yeah, frauds. Uh-huh. Frauds, fads, any of those things. Yeah, yeah. It makes sense to short them if you think they're going to zero. Fundamentally bad businesses that might go to zero. Um, what some people do, though, is they short, and I think this is very attractive to certain value investors, and especially people who feel like they're more advanced investors now and stuff, sure. is shorting things purely based on the valuation. And that's where I think it doesn't make that much sense. And I was talking to well, you about that. Well, because it's, it's yeah. a very hard game, is what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was talking to you about that specifically with a couple companies. Like, um, I years ago invested in a company, J&J Snack Foods. I looked years ago at um, McCormick, which does spices and stuff. And I noticed that both of them were written up as shorts on Value Investors Club. They're very expensive. That's why you would short them. But it's they're very predictable snack foods and uh, and spices. Sure. And those are like leading companies in those areas. Like uh, J&J Snack Foods, if you eat a soft pretzel pretty much at any event in the U.S., you know, you're like at, at a baseball game or something, you eat a soft pretzel, it's probably theirs. It's Super Pretzel is their brand. Uh, Icy is another brand mm-hmm. of theirs that people probably see that's probably one of the better known like um, ice slushy type things. Um, those are pretty predictable things. And uh, there's an expense to shorting. You know, sure. uh, because you have the to cost borrow. To borrow. Yeah, yeah, the cost to borrow. Uh, many companies are talking about paid dividends, which is an extra expense that way. And then you have the the opportunity cost that we're talking about in terms of you're shorting something instead of owning stocks, which tend to go up. You know, and if you think about it, like the market tends to go up. You know, um, whatever, let's say eight percent a year or something like that over time. Uh, even if you think the returns might be a little bit lower than that, uh, even if we were to say, okay, we think the S and P will do five percent a year over the next ten years. By not being long stocks, you're also running the risk that on average they'll go up five percent a year. And so, even if you're right about valuation, like say it's at thirty times earnings, and you're saying I should be at fifteen, that might be true. But actually, the earnings are going along at five percent a year or something, right? And then you have a dividend, and then you've, you're paying something to borrow this. I mean, when you add those things up, yeah. it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So the so I guess like the bottom line is if you're going to short, short on fads and frauds as opposed to just valuation. Yeah. Alone. And definitely don't short like companies that lead in their market and all those things. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. I mean, you might make money in a downturn, but uh, I think you can do that just by shorting. Oh, here's the thing, right? Like J&J snack foods, and maybe yeah. it's not the best example, but if something were to, I mean, if the business were to sell off like crazy, mm-hmm. another company would buy them. It's possible. You know, so you yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, yeah. And we've, we've spoken about this before in the podcast too, why it's so hard to short is because there's so many incentives 
for a business mm-hmm. to succeed. I mean, look at like Berkshire Hathaway, for example. Yeah. Right? And maybe that's a bit of an extreme case, but, um, you know, there was a lot of incentives for that company to succeed. Buffett had a, a, a huge, you know, interest in it. Right. And who would have thought that this textile manufacturer would have became what it is today? You know? Yeah. And I was talking about was something else where I saw a company that um, – uh, not that many years ago, had a fundamentally uh, challenged core business that it was in, right? Yeah. But what they did is they were getting free cash flow from it. And so they took that free cash flow and they invested in other things. So they had like an old tech sort of thing. But what ended up happening is that over a few years, they ended up owning all this stuff that's like this online, very, you know, what the internet's like now thing. Yeah. People shorting it never could have predicted that. But they should have been careful because they were shorting something that had, you know, free cash flow that was 10, 20% a year. Sure. You can take that free cash flow and do smart things with it, you know? Mm hmm. Got it. Um, another mistake that investors always make is they read a lot into the short-term swings of the market. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? That's a huge one. Or, or the stocks that they're following. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. And the stocks that they're following, my favorite one, of course, is that like before they own the stock, they have one way of thinking about the stock. And then once they own it, it means something different. When, sure. You know, because they're actually only paying, to the, paying attention to the day-to-day yeah, swings. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. And that's exacerbated by things like Twitter message boards, things like that. People can ask each other, why is this happening? Why is this going down or whatever? We were talking about this because we were talking about a stock. And you were like, why do you think, it, you know, why do you think that it um, uh, went up or whatever? And I said, well, I mean, I can tell that why it, it was going up is because there's now less selling. There's less supply of selling. Wise guy. Yeah, and I so the it. bidding went up. No, but you're saying that I was being a wise guy, which is true, that basically all we knew is that there's more, yeah, um, totally. uh-huh. there's more bidding than selling. But in that case, actually, we had reason to believe that there had been someone who was selling a lot and that they were done selling. Yeah, exactly. And that's why it started going up. Yeah. Now, I don't know that the people uh, investing in stock necessarily know that um, in some stocks we're a large enough um, owner that it might matter if we were selling one week and then we were done selling our stake or if we decide to stop selling something we've decided to stop selling something not because it has anything to do stop offering to sell not because it has anything to do with the stock but just because the only reason we're offering to sell is because I found something totally unrelated that's better to buy yeah mm-hmm. so suddenly we're willing to sell a large block yeah not you know, because we dislike the company no or, as, or, or anything like yeah. that yeah so someone would be watching that and say oh so suddenly someone's offering way more than a day's volume of the stock and they're willing to sell it but then no one took them up on the offer and then it went away why yeah. did all that happen yeah well it happened because we wanted to buy something else uh, we weren't willing to lower our price no one came up to our price, and so then it went away. That you know, um, but that's sort. Of, all you know about the stock price is the supply and demand of people buying and selling it. That's what's really determining the price and the price movements. Yeah. And people read all this other stuff into it. What do I think that everyone thinks about this? And you know, uh, why did it move this way or, or that? And a lot of times it doesn't make a ton of sense. I mean, we one of our biggest position is NACO, and this year most of its earnings have come from natural gas. But I was pointing out that you know, if you looked at it on day one, all these natural gas companies were up a ton it was up a little bit no yeah. difference uh-huh. so does that mean that people don't know that it's involved a lot with natural gas i don't know does it mean that that people when they want to bet on natural gas one way or the other go to the companies that they recognize and buy those and stuff does it mean that it's a little less liquid and so it's not attracting like traders and stuff yeah. and so that's not what it is you know i don't know i can't say based on those things but you can see that it's not reflecting the underlying fundamentals of the business is changing that much and there's a ton of that now where people read into like why did a move happen you know it's kind of like greenblatt when he said uh why does value investing work and he says i don't know 
I don't care. I just know that's going to continue to work over time. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, you really don't know anything about it from that. And the things I think are funny are when you have these um, media things, you know, where they're always saying, like, you know, two things happened that day. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, oil was up and stocks were down. And so they said, you know, stocks fell because oil prices rose today. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or, you know, um, or take the yield curve, the inverted yield curve, you know. Oh, stocks reacted badly because the yield curve was inverted. Maybe, but maybe, the, but why is the yield curve inverted? They yeah. don't explain why that's happening. You yeah. know? There are well, also supply and demand reasons for why the yield curve would be inverted. Sure. So you could take that to each thing of, okay, well, then why did that happen? Why did, you know, um, they're, 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 those things are related, I'm sure, but they're not, uh, the, the idea that they one thing causes the other like that, yeah. you know? Sure. And sometimes there's just, there's just a chance that if no one had any information about um, new information about a stock, yeah. but people traded it every day, it would still fluctuate a little bit. Sure. If we were all in a media blackout where we couldn't know anything about, you know, NACO or something, right? And you took all the sellers and all the buyers and put them in one place and you, you know, soundproof the room and yeah, whatever, yeah. they can't find anything out yeah. any new information out. On days, it would go up 2% or down 2% sure. sometimes, yeah. Yeah. you know? And... There was no new. There may have been news in the world, but those people in that room couldn't have known it, you know. Yeah. But it would still happen. So it would still follow, you know, a random walk or sure. whatever, no matter yeah. what. Uh-huh. But people are going to read into that something that's a lot. Or they know. You know. They know something I don't know. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Totally. yeah. Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with us here today. Be sure to check out our YouTube videos. Subscribe there. I'm pumping out three videos a week on everything investing related, having a lot of fun doing it. Follow me on Twitter at Focus Compound and then sign up for Jeff's weekly gazette that goes out uh, where we give away a free overlooked stock. And I mm-hmm. think uh, everyone they got this past we'll week. the idea. Yeah, the idea. We don't give you the stock, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> this past week that you wrote about was a very interesting idea. It's not going to be up mm-hmm. on our website for okay. a couple weeks, maybe, or so. Yeah. Uh, but it, uh, definitely check that out. Go to FocusCompoundingGazette.com. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with us, and we'll see you in the next podcast. Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To learn about specific stocks I like, go to FocusCompoundingGazette.com. That's FocusCompoundingGazette.com and enter your email. Once you enter your email, you'll start getting one free 2,000-word stock right up a week. Andrew and I also manage accounts for clients. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at FocusCompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. Thanks for listening.